It's Friday, April 28th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The federal government has filed an 18-page memo over Airman Jack Teixeira. Airboy Jack Teixeira, the kid who leaked classified documents that threatened the security of the United States, Ukraine, and the ongoing conflict there. Now, perhaps in hearing me call him an airboy, you can discern that I've been dismissive. This memo indicates maybe I shouldn't have been. Oh, I'm quite opposed to what he did, but I thought that why he did it was just youthful idiocy. Maybe perniciousness. Maybe something approaching evil or certainly ill intent is the better explanation. The New York Times describes Teixeira, first of all, and this is from the sentencing memo, as representing a flight risk. So I guess that's the one thing the Air National Guard did right in this circumstances, gave him some capacity. But the New York Times also says that Teixeira was prone to making racial threats. Prone. As in, you know, it's a predilection of his. He falls back from time to time on a racial threat. I have, I don't know, one, two, maybe two and a half strikes you're out on racial threats. The threats, racial and otherwise, were so alarming to Teixeira's high school that he was suspended. In 2018, this is from the memo, while still a teenager, the defendant applied for a firearms identification card. His application was denied due to the concern of the local police department over the defendant's remarks at his high school, talking about doing violence to the school, talking about shooting up a school. So what's a better way to get guns and to get your FID card? Join the military and then reapply. He cited his position of trust in the United States government as a reason he should be trusted to possess a firearm. And trusted he was, but not just a firearm. Again, according to the memo, a search of the defendant's primary and secondary residences revealed the existence of a virtual arsenal of weapons, including bolt-action rifles, rifles, AR and AK-style weapons, and a bazooka! Emphasis mine! A bazooka. Look, I know it's easy to make every idiotic 21-year-old who brags and says things on social media out to be the next mass killer. And it's unlikely that Teixeira would have actually gone through with it. But he talked about it. He seemed to stew on it. The sentencing memo talks about In November 22, the defendant stated, and this was in a public Discord server, that if he had his own way, he would, quote, kill a shit ton of people because it would be, quote, culling the weak-minded. Feb 23, the defendant told the user he was attempting to make a specific type of minivan into a, quote, assassination van. And then also in 2023, he sought advice on how to operate a rifle from the back of an SUV, saying that he looked forward to conducting shooting in, quote, a crowded urban or suburban environment. Jack Teixeira is many things, hapless, harmless, and simply over his head seems not to be among those things. He is white, male, Christian, and guess anti-war unless he's waging the war himself. And the reason I quote that is that is how Marjorie Taylor Greene, M.T. Green, described him. And she concluded from the fact that he was white male Christian anti-war, that makes him an enemy to the Biden regime. Also, though, I would add the leaking of the classified material and the threats. And also, let's not minimize the bazooka. In that M.T. Green tweet, 
she uses this rhetorical device by asking the question, ask yourself, who is the real enemy? All right, let me ponder this one. All right, I'm done. It's the gun crazy security risk who spoke about mass assault on a civilian population. I'm going to go with him. It's him. Thanks for the opportunity to ponder, though, Congresswoman Green. On the show today, it's an Antoine Tig. If you've been itching for one, you're not alone. Double. We usually do one every three weeks. Uh, I will admit it's been six. But first, if you listen to the show regularly, you know I'm into asking the question to many people who know many things and offer many slices at the answer. Do mask mandates work for COVID-19? Simple question. The answer is not. My next guest, Jason Abeluk, is a Yale researcher who has been asking and prominently answering that same question, Jason Abeluk, up next. And now the story of decisions in headlines. Headlines, let's start with 2021. We did the research, masks work, and you should choose a high quality mask if possible. Headline number two, the mask mandates did nothing. Will any lessons be learned? Headline number three, no, that new study doesn't show that masks are useless. And I'll also throw in headline number four, reanalysis on the statistical sampling biases of a mass promotion trial in Bangladesh statistical replication. So what I just took you through was researcher Jason Abeluk, who's a professor of economics at the Yale School of Management. He did a massive uh, third of a million people in Bangladesh uh, intervention where some of them were masked and some of them weren't. And this was a randomized control trial, gold standard, and it was included in the famous, maybe infamous Corcoran Review. And the Corcoran Review concluded that there's not enough evidence to show that mask mandates worked. And then we've been arguing about it ever since. But I thought, why not have on Jason Abeluk to talk about his study, what it learned, and what he thinks of uh, this um, massive study of studies. So welcome to The Gist. All right. Thank you. I, I'd say the, the first thing to just remind your audience that I know that you're aware of, but if you write an article for a newspaper, usually you are not the one writing the headlines. <laughs> you don't make the headline. Yes, yes, yes. So I knew that would be like, yes, masks work. If you could perfectly write the headline, but also ensure that people would pay attention. Instead of, uh, we did the research, masks work, and you should choose a high quality mask if possible. I'm sure the second part of that you have no problem with. What would you say? We did the research and... Give me your okay, version so of first, mask work. First of all, if it were an actual headline where I was trying to communicate clearly... I would think about it for days and spend a lot of time choosing those five words. But yeah. if what I wanted to do was just say, what's an accurate statement about what our study showed about masks, I would say, look, we did a large cluster randomized trial that provides the strongest evidence to date that masks are effective at the population level at reducing COVID. And that's still true, right? Your giant Bangladesh study is still the largest RCT trial to date. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, large can be misleading in this kind of study. There's a que questions also about like how well designed it is, whether it's answering the precise question that you want to answer. But I think in all of these respects, I think this is the most direct evidence about whether if you get a lot of people in an area wearing masks, you're going to get less COVID in that area. So tell me how you did your Bangladesh study. Yes. So we, uh, in 600 different villages in Bangladesh, we randomized them to get a very intensive intervention designed to increase mask wearing. Uh, 
we're going to come back to that point later because it's very, very important when we talk about the Cochrane review that we were actually successful in increasing mask wearing quite a lot in the villages that were randomly assigned to get this intervention. So we increased mask wearing by about 30 percentage points from something like 10 to 12% to a little bit over 40%. This, it turns out, is very, very difficult to do. And we can talk about all the things we did to achieve that increase because there are some people who are going to wear masks no matter what. There are other people who adamantly refuse to wear masks. And it turns out it's just generally hard to change people's behavior. So we figured out all kinds of different ways to do that. We got a bunch more people to wear masks in these randomly chosen villages. And then what we did was we went back and we asked them about their symptoms. We said, hey, do you have the symptoms that are typically associated with COVID? We went back five weeks later and nine weeks later. We asked them about that. If they did, then we went back again and we said, hey, is it okay if we can take your blood? because we want to test your blood for COVID antibodies to see if you actually had COVID or maybe some other respiratory disease that has symptoms similar to COVID. And what we found at the end of the day was that in the villages where we did this intervention that increased mask use by quite a lot, people were about 10% less likely to have COVID symptoms, and they were about 10% less likely to have what we call symptomatic seropositivity, which means symptoms where we can confirm that they had COVID. So it seems like, yes, masks did reduce the incidence of COVID. Now, another topic that we very much need to return to is how big is this effect? What are the consequences of this? What does this mean about optimal policy? Right, right. And so I talked about your study on this show, and I acknowledge that even the Cochrane Review acknowledged this was in their meta-analysis, where they said there weren't too many studies that were done, this was a study that was done. It comported with uh, how they would define best practices in the field. And it did show a slight positive effect for population level mask use. Now, you talk about uh, 10% change in or 10% fewer uh, instances of I'm going to I'm going to go with the blood test rather than the covid symptoms that seems more solid. That is true, but how important is it that we're talking about uh I'm trying to remember the numbers that I'm in front of me, but wasn't it point 78% of the population had COVID without the masks and 0.6869% had COVID yeah, with yeah. the masks. So it was, it went from under 1% to slightly more under 1%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's even smaller. And so let's talk about what those numbers mean exactly. That's not actually the fraction of the population that has COVID. That's the po- fraction of the population where they reported COVID symptoms, they consented to have their blood tests tested. And then we found COVID, uh, given that they reported the symptoms and consented to have the blood tested, and then they had COVID. The true proportion of the population with COVID is considerably greater than that, both because only 40% of the people with symptoms consented to give us their blood, and also because there's other people who are asymptomatic who would have had COVID. So on the one hand, the you, you are correct that when we talk about the change in the number of symptomatic people who consented to give blood who, for whom we could find COVID antibodies, that number is very small. The number with COVID is going to be a little bit larger than that. Maybe it's like 2 to 3% of the population. Now, why is this important? Well, of course, during the duration of our study, which is only a couple of weeks, only a few percent of any population will get COVID over, let's say, an eight-week period in these villages. Of course, Over years, many people (laughs) will get COVID. So what you care about is not the absolute number of people who got COVID in the study, but the proportional amount of COVID that you can prevent. 
So for that reason, I think the 10% number is more relevant than, say, the absolute, uh, the absolute change in the uh, percentage points. Yeah. Now, that said, we still need to return to the question of, well, is 10% big or small? What does that mean? Uh, what I would say is it's probably actually on the lower end of what I expected from other studies prior to doing our study. But you shouldn't, you have to interpret the 10% with care. One reason for that is I told you it's not like we went from no one masking to everyone masking. Right. We went from about 10% of people masking to about 40% of people masking. Right, right. Your and, interventions would distribute masks and advocate for it. But some people, even in the villages, without your interventions, decided to mask. And some people in the villages uh, that you were intervening in decided not to mask. Exactly. And that number is obviously going to vary tremendously across contexts. There were places in the United States during mask mandates where more than 90% of people wore masks. And of course, there were other places where they had mask mandates where virtually no one wore masks. So I'm not taking the specific numbers in our study as a prediction of what any given mask mandate will do in any place. It's going to be hugely variable depending on many, many factors, including the politics and much else. Yeah. A question you want to know, though, is suppose you could dramatically increase mask wearing. Suppose we invested a lot of resources in trying to do that. Would it then be effective? What would be the impact if we went from zero to 100%? And what our study suggests is for the types of masks we were looking at, which are surgical masks, if you could get nearly everyone to wear those masks in crowded public areas, you know, maybe you would get a 30% reduction in the amount of COVID. I'm just doing a naive linear extrapolation. I'm saying, oh, you know, if uh, one third of people uh, wearing masks or getting an additional third got 10%, maybe getting everyone gets 30%, yeah. right? There's different models we could write down where we get different answers to that. But I think that would be a reasonable guess based on our results. What's a 30% reduction? Well, you know, Millions of people in the United States died of COVID, tens of millions globally. If you could have prevented 30% of COVID cases, that probably would have been worthwhile. Yes. But that's not exactly the right thing either, because what we really need to ask in, is in any given place, at any given time, should we be encouraging mask use or not? And to answer that question, we need to do a cost-benefit analysis. You must do a calculation. Don't trust people who say they're experts but haven't done a calculation. Yes. Okay, this so, is why I like uh, economists. They like exactly. the calculation. <laughs> so I'm happy to talk about what, the, what my calculations show about different places and times. But yeah. the bottom line is you must use numbers and calculate things. I love that. I have two observations. One is that I think that you, and you know this, you and Brett Stevens are talking about slightly different things. Maybe even you and the Cochrane Review are talking about different things, which is that you did a very good, thorough study, and I understand maybe even more than I did 10 minutes ago, uh, how profound the changes were, because I thought that it went from ever so slight to ever less slight, but you're right. That was only in a short period of time that you were looking at the villages. But what you found was that if you could convince or compel people to wear masks properly, you're going to get some bang for your buck. What he was pointing out is that mask mandates, which are government interventions that work with people who don't want to be compelled and who are not 
uh, of their own accord wearing the right masks properly, do they work? And I think he's also right that they probably don't. You're not exactly talking about the same things. Everyone in your Bangladesh intervention, you know, who wore a mask wasn't going on social media destroying uh, racks of goods at uh, a Kmart in Florida because they were forced to wear masks. So what I think is absolutely correct is if Alabama today mandated, announced, we're having a mask mandate, we're recommending that everyone wear masks, nothing would change in Alabama. No one would wear masks. There would be no impact on COVID. On the other hand, there were many states where the fact that they had mask mandates actually did get a bunch of people to wear masks. If we had another pandemic in the future, there are many states where if all the public health agencies said, hey, we're urgently recommending that people wear masks because it will prevent many deaths, where there would be an increase in mask use. Let me me just pause for a second to say, yes, that's true, but the mask mandate could have essentially had the effect of just underlining how serious officials were and underlining how important they thought it was that you wear masks. And this convinced people to do what they should have done, which is comply and wear masks properly. Was it the mandate or was it the signaling function of the mandate that convinced people to wear uh, the right mask snugly around their face? Yeah. So let me tell you what we learned from our study about this, which is what are effective ways to get people to wear masks and what are not effective. So the first thing we tried is say, hey, let's just give everybody masks and let's tell them why it's important to wear masks, that it prevents COVID and that you don't necessarily know if you have COVID because it could spread asymptomatically, these kinds of things. So that was actually the first thing we tried to do. And we measured in various pilots what impact that had. And it had a very small impact on mask take up in the villages where we gave everyone free masks and we gave people information. So what we added to that that seems to have had a much bigger impact is two things. The first thing is we had people go around in these crowded public areas. So it's a mosque. Someone walks into the mosque and a person says, hey, here's a mask, please put this on. They don't have to. They can say, no, I'd rather not. And we don't harass them further, whatever. But if someone just says to you, hey, here's a mask, please put this on while you're in the mosque, Most people put it on. Most people don't want to pick a fight. So stuff like that seems to be incredibly effective. And the other thing that was effective is we worked with local sort of informal leaders in the villages and some formal leaders. Basically, we reached out to them and we said, hey, can you wear a mask and can you encourage other people to do that? And that seems to have been effective as well. Now, of course, is there an exact analog in, you know, a state in the United States or something like that? It's, it's not clear that there is. But I do think the thing that generalizes is most people don't want to pick a fight. So and uh, a thing you haven't asked me yet is, do I think we should have mass mandates today? I think probably not. I think it doesn't pass a, a cost benefit analysis in, in most places right now when uh, COVID mortality is something like 40 times lower than it was uh, at its peak in like January, February of 2021, or once again, when it peaked again in uh, winter of 2022. So, I mean, I I think that when there are a lot of people dying from COVID, we do have effective means in most places of getting people to wear masks. I say most because there's a couple exceptions. The places where people are adamantly politically opposed, you know, it's probably hopeless until (laughs) maybe, maybe multiple generations from now, it'll be possible again. 
What are the, I understand the benefits, lives saved, you could do a calculation. What are the costs? How do you calculate a cost, an inconvenience cost? Yeah. Or a chafe, so, chafe, no. chafe around the edges of the lips cost? <laughs> That's a really good question. We, we don't have great estimates of this. There's a couple of different ways we could try to calculate those costs. One way that economists love to calculate costs is willingness to pay or willingness to accept. So imagine that there were no risk of COVID at all, masks didn't offer any protection. And we just said to you, hey, we're going to make things kind of inconvenient. We want you to just wear a mask. It's going to be uncomfortable, but we'll compensate you. We'll give you a little bit of money. How much money do we have to give you to, you know, just wear a mask when you're in a public area? Is it, is it $10? Is it $20? Is it $1? And that is a way of quantifying the inconvenience cost, basically how much we'd have to compensate people so that they were willing to actually wear the mask if they thought that it wasn't protective at all. We don't have great estimates of that, but, you know, we can make reasonable guesses of what the magnitude is. Like, you know, if you're going to stand in a post office for an hour, probably most people for $100 would gladly wear a mask. Probably for $1, a lot of people wouldn't. Somewhere between 1 and 100, where exactly it is, it's going to depend on the population and it's going to depend on, uh, it's going to depend on the specific study. Um, so that's one cost. Now, of course, there's other costs in different settings. If we're talking about masking in schools, a big concern is uh, two concerns. One is communication. If, for example, a teacher is wearing a mask or a student is wearing a mask, it's to prevent them from communicating effectively. A second is a concern about, oh, you're just uncomfortable, so you can't pay attention and learn as effectively. And then there's a third concern in younger children about sort of socialization and how important is it to see faces to do that. And on basically all of these counts, my view is we should be we should be very, very strongly agnostic because we just don't have strong evidence about the magnitude of these effects. Jason Abeluk is a professor of economics at the Yale School of Management. And please do not make fun of his efforts as the leader of this 340,000 Bangladesh survey that went into religious communities and tried to convince them to use masks. What I'm saying is don't mock mass. Damn it. Don't mock mass. Don't mock mask, mask. Okay, fuck it. I fucked it up. <laughs> you ready? It was don't mock mask, mosque, mask, muckety mucks. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes, that, that was, was very big pun thank you. that I was working on. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Jason Abeluk, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Okay. That happens not to have been the actual end of our conversation. We go on for 30 more minutes. We get deep. If you're a Pesca Plus subscriber, you can listen to all that. Plus, plus, plus. I'm going to give you and share with you, the Pesca Plus subscribers, our conversation about Connect Four. And for the first time ever on The Gist, there will be visual elements included, but only for Pesca Plus subscribers right now. If you're not a Pesca Plus subscriber, you might be kicking yourself saying, how come I don't get a visual element? On the other hand, maybe you're saying, well, he's experimenting with this select cadre of Pesca Plus subscribers. I don't want him to experiment on me. Either way, and whatever you decide, or if you just love Connect Four, subscribe.mikepesca.com is the way to get the show ad-free or with more content. Thanks. And now the Antoine Tig, our name for recurring bad breath, not due to illness. Actually, no, it's a three-week period, but it might as well be simple chronic halitosis because uh, we skipped one. That happens. Sometimes we got to let the listener reaction build up. And so we did. 
I think I could take an Antoine Tig Mulligan. I'm going to give myself twice a season. But let's round up all the reaction to the greatest segments that we've done, not just over the last Antoine Tig, but the last Twenten Tig, two Antoine Tigs. And let's just start with I'm going to give myself a pat on the back via Reasonable Moxie, who posts on our Reddit page. The Reddit page is a very good repository for excellent reader interaction and feedback. I started listening with skepticism because of my general skepticism about the concept of generations to Mike's interview with Gene Twenge. And she notes, or he notes, Reasonable Moxie shares the... I I guess I said Reasonable Moxie might be a she because I know that Pendulette's daughter's name is Moxie Crime Fighter. Is Moxie a girl's name? Are there anything such as girls' names anymore? Anyway, RM says, I ended up feeling really glad I listened, particularly because of the point that technology shapes the experience of people growing up at different times. I also can't help but appreciate Mike's positive attitude. I'm not much of an optimist, but I like hearing one lead conversations. That's me on the gist every day. Thanks, RM. Ari Berlin writes in with a note indicative of many listener objections to the pronunciation of the word indicia. Myself and Professor Judge talked about that word, and yet I don't think we got it right. It's indicia. It's not indicia. But thanks for everyone who wrote in for not being a dish about it. The two spiels I did in the last uh, six weeks that got the most attention were me talking about, one, the death of animals in barns, in which I was pretty glib about my own carnivorous habits, and two, about the shooting of Ralph Yarl, the 16-year-old in Kansas City, in which I wasn't glib at all, but listeners raised objections, as I knew they would, and they were fine objections, and I'd like to uh, engage on exactly what I was talking about. Now, to stand for many different people who said that I got it wrong, I'm going to read the post of a Redditor, Spectacular Gobsmack. I believe we've quoted SG before. And Spectacular Gobsmack says... Mike misses the reason that the Yarl story is making news and why it's notable. The Washington Post article he links to, this one, addresses it from the right angle. Black people should be able to do normal, everyday things without being shot. If a white person came to Lester's door and rang the doorbell, he would not have pulled out his thirty-two caliber revolver and started shooting. He shot a young person because Lester perceived a threat from a large black man, never mind that the child was 5'8 and 140 Pounds. So the exasperation, the horror, the exhaustion that drives the coverage of the Yarl case is this. In 2023, a black person cannot just go about normal life with the same risk as a white person. A black shopper is followed by the clerk who sees a shoplifter. A black motorist is stopped by a cop who sees a criminal. A black boy is shot by a white man who sees a large and dangerous threat. Okay, I would love to address this. I get it. I know that this point is true. And in some of those examples, uh, that's absolutely accurate. Statistics about, say, New Jersey highway stops and the driving while black critique have been proved out, not just through lived experience, but in fact, through statistics, through measuring, the Justice Department often has to intervene. However, when it comes to the idea, gobsmack put it, there is the correct phrase 
that he or she cites in their post that a black person cannot just go about normal life with the same risk as a white person. That is true. Look at the murder statistics. Look at so many medical outcomes for black people. However, what the Yarl case was doing was being used as an example of that sentence as regards white people's violence against black people. And this is why I quoted that LeBron James tweet, and this is why I reference Ahmaud Arbery. They're hunting us. We can't go outside and do normal things, meaning white people visit violence upon black people all the time at a disproportionate rate or just all the time. And I don't, I simply do not know how true that is. I do know that in stand your ground states, which are most of them, a white person will get off a lot easier if uh, he or she, almost always a he, shoots a black person, then a white person, or certainly the other way around, there are rare instances of a black person shooting a white person, claiming stand your ground and getting away with it. That's true. But the thesis, America's a dangerous place for black people, true, because white people are shooting them a lot, the statistics don't bear that out. So what does bear that out? The perception is a false perception. Well, we can, and the media does, List the times it happened. Trayvon Martin, Ahmed Arbery, Ralph Yarl. However, this was a case where there was a counterexample, a prominent example of almost the exact form of crime happening to a white person, from a white person. And then after I recorded the spiel, and I literally have never seen this happen, it was a horrible confluence, but one that very much proved my point that the white person shooting or visiting violence upon the black person was not is not a common occurrence. Two other high-profile incidents happened. There was the shooting of the African or maybe biracial cheerleader in Texas. The shooter, Pedro Rodriguez Jr., is, I believe, by name and appearance, Hispanic. And then there was the other instance of the six-year-old girl being shot in North Carolina, and the shooter in that case, Robert Singletary, 24 years old, he's black. And the he shot two people, and they're both white, including the six-year-old. So the story, the story of America is a dangerous place for black people because of white people, it just couldn't be told in the context of these four shootings. And I noticed as the coverage changed, first of all, Kansas City coverage stayed on the point, quoting the leader of the local Urban League, talking about it as a crime against black people. So the local coverage in Kansas City stayed on that point, but nationally, it was put in the context that I put it in, which is gun crime. And I just ask, and I, I talked to spectacularly gobsmacked and everyone else, I just asked to think, how true is it? How true is the thesis, the Ralph Yarl thesis that was being pursued before these other shootings happened? How true is it about the dangerousness of black people in our society from a gun wielded by a white person? Not a societal structure erected by white people, not institutional racism and poverty and grinding poverty that creates situations of danger. It's... It's not that true. The statistics show that it's not that true. And if we as the media say it's true every single time it happens, I don't think we're doing a service to not just Americans, but to 
black parents who feel like they have to give the talk. I don't know if they actually have to give the talk about inherent danger of white people. I think it's more about uh, white police, but I have read that in the context of the Ralph Yarrell shooting. This is why we have to give the talk to our young young black uh, boys and girls. I don't, I would never tell a parent not to be maximally cautious uh, as regards their children making their way in America. But I think that there is a large element of disservice when we emphasize the danger that isn't there or isn't there for the exact reason we're talking about. Now, on to eating meat. One common critique is that I took it lightly. And that is true. I did. I actually think seriously about eating meat. I'm not anguished about it. I can explain why. But I always make jokes about things that I even take seriously. And I know this can have an effect on an audience member, especially if you're on the opposite side that I am. You could say, you know, maybe you could say, okay, Mike makes jokes about everything. Or you could say, he really doesn't share my values. He's really making light of something not to make light of. I take this into account. And so I have two choices. I could lard all my statements with disclaimers. I could just simply not engage in, I think you could fairly call that insensitivity about the opinions, the moral stances of the non-meat eater, or maybe even insensitivity to the animals. But instead, I just, I think, beg your indulgence with everything, there'll be a topic that you don't agree with me on, and I might make a joke, and that joke might well fly in the face of where you stand. Now, I have to say, most of the people who wrote in and said, Mike, you were being far too flippant, they didn't say, and I'm never listening again. They said, I'm going to eat my bean burrito and contemplate the errors of your way. And now we come to the lobster of the Antoine Tig, the listener, the Redditor, the subscriber to the Pesca Profundities substack. That counts, even though it's not technically the gist, who best interacted with me. And today I cite a common note. Many people raise this note that I did the math wrong when talking about Airman, Airboy, Jack Teixeira saying that uh, Ruby Ridge occurred 30 years before he was born. In fact, it occurred 30 years ago. He's 21, so it only occurred nine years before he was born. But why does one of you stand out as deserving of the lobster? Well, Stephen Durian writes in and says that, I just so happen to have the same birthday as you, December 29th, 1971, same exact birthday, And I could say my mind is sharper than ever, and maybe you feel the same way. However, you made a slip up about, and then he corrected me on Ruby Ridge. Now, the question is, why is it fair for me to elevate Stephen Durian and say you're the lobster over everyone else who wrote in and said I made that mistake? And and the answer is yes, and I'll say why. Because it's my show, goddammit, goodnight. No! It's because Stephen Durian has a December 29th, 1971 birthday. And if you fall in between Christmas Day and New Year's Day, your birthday has been under-celebrated. You've gotten fewer gifts in your life. Sure, Steve, I, and Mary Tyler Moore share a birthday, and maybe it's made us better people, but I do think in the course of his life, he's missed out on a little, and I'm here to make it up to him. So Stephen Durian, for noting a mistake and having an excellent birthday, I bestow upon you the award, the Lobstar of the Antoine Tig. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. 
Michelle Pesca is Peachfish Productions' Vice President of Personnel and many other things. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.